Not one, not 10, not 10,000, not a million, not 10 million, not a hundred million, but a million, two billion of us, all of the people of the world, we will have the slogan and we will have the hymns and we will have the guns and we will use them and we will live. Make no mistake of it, we will live. We will be alive and we will walk and talk and eat and sing and laugh and feel and love and bear our children in tranquility, in security, in decency, in peace. You plan the wars, you masters of men, Plan the wars and you point the way and we will point the gun. Welcome to The Pointless Century. Where we discuss literature, film, and culture in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Tonight... We'll be thinking about the importance of timing in publishing anti-war literature, the shortcomings of Metallica's one, the loss of meaning when novels are turned into films, and, as always, fascism. So, tonight on The Pointless Century, we'll be discussing two major novels published in 1939, Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider, easily the best-known and most thorough treatment of the 1918 influenza pandemic in American literature, and Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun, which deals with a near total casualty of the First World War. Both of these are published a full generation after that war ends. Mm -hmm. And really in some ways are dealing with the question of memory, the question of what remains after the war and how that war is going to be remembered. We'll also be talking about Dalton Trumbo's 1971 film version of Johnny Got His Gun, which mm-hmm. is, I have to imagine, was his pet project. Um, he was also the director. Yes, he wrote it, and then he rewrote it, and then he directed it. And I, it may be the only film he ever directed. He was mainly known as a screenwriter. And as I imagine you know, Rachel, he was blacklisted in the mid-40s through the 50s until 1960. Because he was a communist and he wouldn't name names. Sometimes people will say that when the Hollywood 10, as they were called, went to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, they took the Fifth Amendment. Actually, if I'm understanding the situation correctly, they took the First Amendment, which is not something that people do usually and might have been why they were held in contempt of Congress. But the idea is that they hadn't done anything wrong. They hadn't done anything illegal. So there was no Fifth Amendment to take. And so in not answering questions, they pleaded the First Amendment as in, fuck you. It's none of your business what I believe or what meetings I went to or who I saw at those meetings because I have First Amendment rights. The more recent film Trumbo dealt with this story and is in a general sense accurate in my understanding. But, you know, those things we've talked about biopics here before, there are Mm -hmm. inevitable inaccuracies, usually for dramatic purposes or to compress Mm -hmm. time or stuff like that. I think Trumbo spent a little bit of time in federal prison. He also spent some time in self-imposed exile in Mexico, which is, I think, 
kind of about as glamorous as it sounds, which is to say that, yeah. you know, it, he was comfortable, but maybe not incredibly comfortable. He was kind of an odd duck and people will even dicker on about whether he was a, actually a communist or not. He was a member of the communist party for a relatively brief period of time. But I think that in terms of his political viewpoint, he can and probably should be described, broadly speaking, as a communist with a lowercase c. But, you know, like a lot of people, he had a sort of idiosyncratic notion of his politics and it was personal to he himself. And I think that one of the things that disappoints me most about the way that people discuss Johnny Got His Gun is that they don't talk about it as a communist novel, or if they do, they do it for the wrong reasons. But we'll get to that eventually. Anyway, so he comes out of the blacklist. He's writing screenplays while he's blacklisted, usually under pseudonyms, sometimes borrowing his friends' names. He gets an Oscar for Roman Holiday, only he doesn't get it. Like his buddy gets it instead because he put his friend's Um. name on the script. And so there are a few situations like that. And then ultimately the movie that is a breakthrough is Spartacus. In 1960, he writes Spartacus and Kirk Douglas, who was a real swinging dick of the libs, if you will, you know, not like a super radical dude himself, but he knew what was right and what was wrong. You know what I mean? He just out and said it. Dalton Trumbo is writing this movie that I'm doing. And that basically, in and of itself, pretty much broke the blacklist. At the same time, I think it was Preminger was working on Exodus, which Trumbo was also writing. And so those were sort of revealed almost simultaneously. And if you watch Spartacus, if I'm remembering correctly, I think some of the prints of Spartacus have Trumbo's name on it and some of them don't, depending on when it was released. Because I think that initially the intent was to keep it secret, but Kirk Douglas was, well, he was Kirk Douglas. Johnny Guy's Gun has sort of this weird political history because it's published in 1939, like exactly at the worst possible moment to write a pacifist Mm -hmm. novel, basically. And there were some people who even associate it with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that said like, oh, well, this is a Nazi-Soviet Pact propaganda novel. And part of Mm -hmm. that is because when they did the serialization, sections of it were published in, I think it was the Partisan Review, whatever the hip communist magazine of the era was. And that's probably why, quite honestly. But that's not why Trumbo wrote it. Of course, you know, it's a novel. He would have started working on it like two years earlier than that before it was published. And so he was just sort of thinking about war in the broad general sense. It won the National Book Award, and then it appears that it was allowed to lapse out of print after Pearl Harbor. And basically, it was not in publication again until, I want to say maybe the 50s. Trumbo writes in one of his forewords to that novel that, let's see, I'll pull it out here. One of the forewords, I think, is a Korean War era, and one is Vietnam War era. So the first introduction, he writes... Well, not Korean War era. I'm a little bit too early. In 1959. So it must have been republished in 59. Trumbo is still on the tail end of his blacklist. And it could have been republished earlier than that. I'm not sure. But that's just the first introduction that we get. And Trumbo tells this story about how during the Second World War, he had people coming to him complaining about how it wasn't being made available, about how the government was suppressing free speech and stuff like that. Inevitably, he'd look into the people who were writing him these letters, and it was always that they were like, "Eh, actually Nazis. (laughs) um, So there was some manipulation of the sort of free speech rhetoric, even in that era. And he even tells a story about how he tried to tip off the government and then eternally regretted it. Because of course, what did they do? They just came to his house and asked him a bunch of questions. But he also said that he heard from service members who had read it in base libraries too. So he doesn't think it was actually being actively suppressed ever. It was just Mm -hmm. that it fell out of style for obvious reasons. 
anyway, so he does his second introduction to this in 1970. So that's another round of republication. And that's, that's I suppose, what we call today the movie tie-in version, right? Yeah. The movie tie-in edition. This is like Trumbo's triumphant return to Hollywood saying, mm-hmm. like, well, now I can do whatever I want to do. And I've got something big to say. The Vietnam War is at its worst fucking point, And it seems mm-hmm. like it's never going to end. And yeah. he republishes his greatest novel. I would argue one of the greatest novels in American literature, period. But not a lot of people agree with me on that one. I really like this one. Yeah. And at the same time, then he's working on and releasing the film version, which I don't think stands up as well, but we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about that. Anyways, this yep. is his baby. This is his baby. Then it rises to prominence once again in the 90s <laughs> when Metallica decides to write and record the song One, which is basically just a songification of the concept of the novel. And it used extensive footage and audio from the movie in the music video in their live shows too. And eventually they get so sick of paying royalties on all this that they just bought the rights to the movie. So now if you order a copy of the film, Johnny Got His Gun, to this day, you're buying it from Metallica. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which I is bought it off hilarious. Amazon Prime, so. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious. Okay, so I obviously have a lot to say about this. And I said one came out in the 90s. It did not. It was released in 1989. So I was close. But I, of course, remember it from my halcyon youth of watching MTV in the 90s. And honestly, even then, it seemed a bit weirdly antiquated. I don't know. Metal in general was weirdly antiquated after Nevermind. But that will be a discussion for another day. Rachel, I'll throw it to you. Tell me what you thought of these texts, what you think is most important about them, what you want to discuss. After reading Johnny Got His Gun, like... I still feel encapsulated and so lost. And uh-huh. if Joe were a real person, props to you for not completely losing it. Yeah. The movie version, having the outside perspectives and stuff didn't feel as heavy. I mean, it was obviously still heavy, but like yeah. seeing that the nurse was trying to help him, like, wow, that was powerful. Just seeing the other stuff, like seeing how it worked in the real world, not in the real world. The outside, outside. world. Yeah. The outside world. It was heavy, man. It was heavy. (laughs) I think that the first time I read this novel, and I luckily hadn't seen the movie. I mean, I guess the movie's kind of in obscurity, except that, you know, people know of it because of the Metallica video. But I hadn't seen the movie before I read the book. And I think that's, of course, as it should be, though there are examples that reverse this. I, of course, knew that a movie existed, though, because I'd seen the music video, right? Mm -hmm. But reading the novel the first time, my immediate thought, and granted, I was in a creative writing fiction program, so I'm biased, but my first thought was, there's no way that this could be done in movie form. The whole concept of the book is to model the consciousness of Mm -hmm. Joe Bonham in his state. And that can really only be done through literature. I think the book in and of itself is a really great argument for the novel as a form. Now, luckily, Dalton Trumbo actually was one of the great mid-century screenwriters too. So when he adapted it to a film, he was able to understand how things needed to be done differently to make it work as a film. 
That said, though, I think that there was no way that he was going to be able to do what he did in the novel. And yeah. he probably knew that. There's just no way that it could be anywhere near as good or as effective. It was also interesting with the film. I'm a much more visual person. It was just seeing Donald Sutherland as Christ. And that was really funny to me and having him doing carpentry. Yeah. It was just very bizarre to me. And I know it's supposed to be bizarre, but... Yeah, I think that ultimately... There are certainly dream sections in Mm -hmm. the book, of course, Mm -hmm. but the decision was made pretty obviously that the only way to make this work was to lean into the sort of surrealism angle Mm -hmm. and to go a lot further with all the different opportunities somebody can use in a film to Mm -hmm. do fantasies and do dreams and do flashbacks and stuff like that. And while those things are in the original novel, actually in a very, very different order, which I think changes a lot about the whole feel of the thing, the real core of the novel is just Joe's thoughts narrating through that sort of stream of conscious anchor that draws us into the way that he thinks about the world. And then that will alternate between those flashbacks or those fantasies. And this is what makes it a really great modernist novel. And both Johnny Got His Gun and Pale Horse, Pale Rider are, to my mind, the peak of the American modernist form, even though they're not as well remembered as Mm -hmm. a lot of the other novels of their era. They really do, I think draw the bounds of what you can do in a high modernist style and actually still be very successful with writing a novel. It's important to remind ourselves that when these novels were published, they weren't niche things that literary geeks read, even though they are highly literary and very complex in their structure and in their language, they were popular novels in their era while also being literary novels. And that's sort of what makes them this peak moment of modernism before the Second World War comes in and not only changes the politics of everything, but also, I would argue, changes the media supremacy. The novel after the Second World War will always be less important than film. And you can see it in the film adaptations that come out right at the end of the war and after the war, like all those film noir adaptations of thrillers and mystery novels and crime, uh, hard-boiled stuff. Those movies are very frequently as good as or better than the original text. And we can explain that in a lot of different ways, but it's just my sort of way of pointing my finger at how the modernist novel hits its peak and then Hollywood finally figures out how to crank out a slam bang, like that's a Mm -hmm. movie movie, something that we've Mm -hmm. seen them sort of stumbling through in the 20s and 30s, figuring out how sound works. One thing I also did appreciate about the movie is the present day, it's black and white. Yeah. And Pat, I really appreciated that because like kind of switching... Like the new stuff is black and white. I really appreciated that. That was a nice touch. And the, the film stock is actually different in three ways. There are actually three different film stocks used in Johnny Got His Gun. You have the black and white film stock for the present day in the hospital. You have the standard color film stock used for the flashback scenes from Joe's childhood and the war. And then there's this even more intensely colorized film stock that's used for the dream sequences and the sort of surrealist bits. Those are nice touches. I really appreciated that. What did you think of Pale Horse, Pale Rider? I really liked it. What do you think worked well in that novel? 
what made it meaningful or effective or what? That it was through the point of view of a female for once, especially for this generation, like yeah. era of books. I That was really refreshing because it still had the same feel as books of those times, but it was through non-male you know, I really like yeah. that. And that gave it a nice perspective. And that was really successful for me. I mean, I think that Porter succeeds in giving us honestly, and, and Anna's going to disagree with me on this one, but that's okay. Honestly, Porter gives us a view of the war that resists not only our notion of the front, but even our notion of the home front. Mm-hmm. Because even though it is, of course, literally about the home front, Even though Miranda is obviously romantically involved, which I suspect is going to be the thing that tips Anna into anger. Even though we have those two things, she's not keeping the home fires burning. She's just living her life. You know, she's Mm -hmm. not taking care of children. She's not working in a munitions factory. We see her do a hospital visit and do a soldier's dance, but in the sort of way that I imagine as more realistic in this sort of way as like, well, you know, this is my whole life. I'm just like dropping in for a minute, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. We see a certain amount of cynicism towards the war. In fact, I, we get hints that she's actually against the war, but that she feels mm-hmm. too intimidated to speak Why? out against mm-hmm. it, which I think is really important. And so to my mind, it gives us a very different view of the war than what we get elsewhere. Um, and it really, of course, obviously centers the pandemic over mm-hmm. the war. It's significant in that there's no other major novel of the era that does other novels mention it but going through the literature of people who are trying to do monographs on treatments of the pandemic in u.s literature they always start with these long-winded introductions that are like this thing is sort of missing from our memory and it's really bizarre that it is there's only this one novel that really dealt with it in long form and then it's after that it's grasping at straws for like any other novel that has a brief section on it Mm -hmm. or a mention of it or that we can like read it into the novel this is really the only novel that does the full treatment of it Mm -hmm. and i think that that's really significant Catherine Ann Porter herself did come down with influenza and very similarly to Miranda had this near-death experience. Her fever went so high that all her hair fell out and then when it grew back, it never had any color in it again. And some people describe it as an autobiographical novel, which I don't really think is the case. I don't think that she had any relationship with a soldier like this. But I do think that it's pretty clear that she had one or more experiences early in life where she was like, well, you know, I can't really depend on a man. And in her, in the course of her life, I can't remember exactly, but I think she went through like five or six marriages. I kind of lost count at some point. (laughs) She was a free spirit. You know, after this happened to her, it seems that she just had no fucks left to give, which is basically where Miranda is at the end of the novel. But Porter did wait a solid 20 years to write it. And I suppose that she was probably writing little bits and pieces of it the whole time. But you get to a generation later and her, just like Trumbo with Johnny Got His Gun, she is obviously in a position where she feels like people need to hear this story. And so she tells it because otherwise, I mean, that's the risk is that it will be forgotten. And I think that that's the same exact motivation of Trumbo writing his great novel. 
I certainly don't think that Pale Horse, Pale Rider is as good a novel as Johnny Got His Gun. But like I said, I would probably put Johnny Got His Gun in maybe the top three to five American novels ever, period. I'm extremely biased. There was a time when I would say that it was my favorite novel, but I don't think that it's that. Like, I think that technically speaking, it is an achievement. You can say Mm -hmm. that like, this is something that our culture did. Whether you want to define our culture as American culture or, you know, (laughs) communist culture or pacifist culture or the 20th century or whatever weird dudes sitting in their bathtubs obsessing over shit. Trumbo apparently had some bizarre skin condition, so he did do a lot of his writing literally in the bathtub. And that might have given him a little bit of a perspective on disability that helped him with this novel because he was used to the notion of like, well, I'm just sitting here. I never really thought about that before, but it just sort of came to me in this moment. Were you guys aware of the term basket case before you read this novel? Yes. Johnny Guy's Gun? Okay. Absolutely. As a term for someone who's crazy or a term for a situation that's useless or what? Useless, hopeless. We always used it or it was taught to me as someone who was crazy. Yeah. So it's been used in both of those senses. Mm -hmm. And apparently the term originates in American vernacular English in, of course, 1918. And surrounding the rumor that there were American soldiers in war hospitals who were quadruple amputees, a basket case being, well, you have to carry them around in a basket. Okay. So the first then derivation from there would be that like, well, this is a useless case. And then the other derivation being that like, well, eventually this person's going to go crazy. Now, people who have looked back into the archives have seen that actually the first use of the term basket case is in official statements from, I don't know, was it Secretary of War of the United States or something like that? claiming that there is no such thing as a basket case. There are no soldiers who have quadruple amputations who are in our hospitals. This is just a rumor going around. And so then this leads some people to say, well, it's just a myth. Now, on the other hand, we know of people like Ron Kovic, like I said, from Vietnam, who is, he was a paraplegic. And statistically speaking, it stands to reason that there very well should have been quadruple amputees in the First World War. Sometimes you'll see like, oh, well, there was this one guy up in Canada who, well, actually his life wasn't all that bad. And then you start wondering like, well, is this the guy that they let the information get out on? Like who's locked in a closet somewhere? That's the question that Trumbo's asking. Trumbo claims that he saw an article in, I think it was a Canadian newspaper about the King of England going to Canada and visiting a hospital and seeing a sign on a door that says no entry. And he says, I want to see who's behind that door. And then the newspaper reporting that the only way that he could communicate with the wounded soldier was by kissing him on the forehead. You can see how this inspires the whole novel. It translates into a very crucial moment there. I looked for that article, knowing what newspaper was supposed to be in and what month it was supposed to appear in. I could not find it. That doesn't disprove that it happened. It just means there was an archive. So we don't know whether there were actual basket cases or not. The government claims that they did not exist. I suspect that it's impossible to assume that there weren't people with quadruple amputations. I suspect that statistically speaking, it must have happened. My father had both his legs and most of his fingers cut off and he just had diabetes. He didn't go through a war. So I feel like there must have been in the millions of people who went through this war, there must have been some people who had quadruple amputations. Now, whether there were people who were with quadruple amputations and also broken faces, perhaps that never happened. We know there were men with their whole faces fucking lost. We have photos of that for sure. 
But yeah, I also don't understand. He lost his arms and his legs and part of his face. His whole face, his eyes, his nose, his mouth. I just don't, with the blast, because they said he went into the fetal position. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of the angle. Like, I'm getting way too technical. You're thinking too hard about it. It's the kind of (laughs) shit that nobody could explain. You know, shrapnel and bullets go in weird directions. Nobody can predict them. But we know that there were dudes with their whole faces hollowed out. We know that there are dudes who were driven stone deaf by an explosion. We know that there were amputations. It's only one step further to hypothesize that there was somebody who could have had all of these wounds in one person. And in a certain sense, we could take this as a sort of metaphorical thing where he embodies all the wounds of the war. But in another sense, it's worth pondering whether somebody like this might have actually existed. Because if they did, only Dalton Trumbo can speak for them. There have been many claims that the concept of the basket case was merely a myth, but I have trouble believing that with that many people in that war, as bad as it was, there couldn't have been at least somebody with something similar to this. Maybe not exactly as extreme as this situation, but something like it. So I was walking through Goodwill one day. I spent like an hour in there, you know, just your typical college student looking to buy books. And I had heard of this novel before, you know, from other people and stuff. And I saw a tattered copy of it. Johnny Got His Gun is what I'm talking about. And then I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I threw it in my cart with Shakespeare and all all of that other shit. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, I'll probably read it later. And then I ended up reading it later on in the fall when I had a break between two other things I was reading. Yeah, I remember being surprised that you had read it because you mentioned offhand to me that you'd read it. And I was like, I didn't tell you to read that one. Yeah, I I was surprised because it's the kind of thing that I would have told you to read, but I didn't. (laughs) No, I mean, when other people mentioned it too, you know, that was after the time when I had been interested in that sort of stuff anyway. So I just went for it. And like I said, and I've commented on this many times, you know, we see the same form being used in some other novels that we've read that fragment in style. And I'd say that's also being used Maybe less so in Pale Horse, Pale Rider, too. Yeah, I think it's done better here. I think it's done better in Johnny Got His Gun. We could call it, broadly speaking, the modernist style. I think that with Catherine Ann Porter's use of it, it's a little bit more free-flowing, a little bit more like she just wants to do what she wants to do. With Dalton Trumbo, and this might have to do with him being a screenwriter, it's almost like you can see him literally stealing. Like, oh, here he's doing Hemingway. Oh, here he's doing Dos Passos. You know what I mean? For sure. But he does it well. He does it well. But even if you've read like one or two other things in the whole, I won't say genre, but, you know, around the same time frame and trying to do the same thing is like, oh, yeah, you know, you definitely see where they all get it from. No, but I mean, I do appreciate that style, though, because like I said before, you know, it shows you a lot in a short amount of time. And I think for me, at least for Johnny Got His Gun, I think that's why it was my favorite out of the two, because something about how it cuts back short between chapter to chapter, scene to scene, I would describe it like close cuts in a movie. Yes. like, Like that close cut in Amistad, it places you right there. And I really appreciate that, especially if we're talking about such brutal scenes of him being in the hospital bed and just trying to count time, literally trying to count time. And it's just doing something so normal, yet it's so painful because of the way that he writes it. It makes you feel more. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Rachel and I were talking about how, because it's so grounded in the stream of consciousness, if you read it and you haven't seen the movie before, it's easy to be like, how the hell would you put this on film? Like you'd basically rip the whole heart out of the thing to do it because it really works by recapitulating that experience in your head. And I think that this actually informs the politics as well, especially when you get to like midway through the novel and especially at the end, the way that Joe works out his political thoughts is to my mind, the whole lesson in and of itself in radical philosophy. And it's something that you just plain can't do in a film. It's something that the novel does as a way of modeling consciousness. And that's quite different than what Catherine Ann Porter is doing with her dream sequences and her sort of streams of consciousness. Her version of modernism is just like a little bit more free flowing. But anyway, continue. What can I say? I guess I just like the nasty because... (laughs) (laughs) Because obviously if you compare the two, yeah, okay, you're dealing with different kinds of nasty, but moving from form to content, I would say that I'd have to agree too that, you know, the content of Johnny Got His Gun is stronger than Pale Horse, Pale Rider, if you can compare them. And I don't know if comparison is possible. Why do you think comparison is impossible? At least to my taste, I think if you were going to make a comparison, you'd make a comparison on form and composition and not on content. Okay. Why does content not compare? I literally have been thinking about a comparison on content for about a month. So I'm curious about this. To me, they don't compare because they're in the same era. It is possible. But for me, you know, they're talking about different things and then therefore they should be evaluated separately. But of course, like in any film, or whatever, there's always going to be connections between them. Is it that Miranda comes back? Is that what makes it so different in content? Or is it just that it's not the war? It's just not the war. Okay. Yeah. What's your comparison? Well, I think the big difference is that Miranda comes back. I think that the other big difference is that she comes back with an attitude of fuck all y'all, whereas Joe is like fully radicalized and ready to fight the revolution, but can't and won't ever come back. So there's a sort of brutal irony there, but that's the justification for the novel's existence. The Trumbo is speaking for someone who could not speak for themselves. I agree more with Frank because the differences between them are one, Miranda comes back and two, She's not totally realizing that she's in dreams and stuff. And it's it's just slightly different, but during the same time period, it's about consciousness and being one within yourself. Though Miranda, there's much more like dialogue and action going in the, in the first part. But I think there's more similarities than not. I mean, I think there are a lot of differences, obviously, but I just felt like looking at the similarities was important. Obviously, for the paper that I was working on for Asley, because my hope is that we can get some political meaning out of this, the question of, okay, well, what do we do when we return to the world? And I know that that's a big self-important question to ask, but I'm a prof. It's my job to do this. So, (laughs) and hell, Asley thought it was worth asking. They could have rejected me if they thought that I was just a pompous jerk. So what do you think didn't work about Pale Horse, Pale Rider? TBH, I just hated it. I know you did. That's why I'm asking. Okay, keep in mind, I read it a while ago. From what I remember, it's not worth our time. And earlier I was talking about Johnny Got His Gun in form. And I'm going to go back to that here when I'm talking about Pale Horse, Pale Rider in form. 
like I said before, the big thing for me was what she attempted to do with the form. And even though it might be more free flowing, I just didn't think it worked well because she also has, to me, in my mind, a weak plot as well. It's almost a non-plot. Yeah. And I think that's why Johnny Got His Gun is so strong in comparison is because I don't know what you'd classify that plot is. I mean, it's amazing that Trumbo found a plot. Right. But to me, almost every image or scene in that book is just, I don't know, to me, it goes so hard in comparison. And for this novel, you know, having an attempt at a weak form and then a non-plot just doesn't work. You have to give the reader something or you at least have to give me something to keep me interested. And you say Miranda comes back. I don't remember that part. But again, if it was written well enough, then I should have remembered it. I mean, she comes back from the dead. She's not like incapacitated forever, you know? Yeah. You don't remember the ending prominently. No, I don't remember. That That is interesting to me. I would say that that's proof that she lost you by then. I mean, that's fair enough. Her reader response is fair enough. She'd lost you by then. You weren't really paying too much attention. But to me, that's one of the most important parts of the novel is that she comes in out of her delirium and they're like, you're better. Yay. The war is over. Yay. Oh, also that dude that you fell in love with, he's dead. He died of flu before he ever even got deployed. And her attitude is like, Man, I wish that I could go back to those dreams I was having. That's and it such is a fucking dumb ending. I mean, it's to me a really characteristically modernist ending. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. It's that turn to fuck all y'all that just crumples up the whole universe into a little tiny ball and throws it the fuck in the trash. And in a certain sense, it's a really brave way to end the story. But I could see why you would say that it's also a meaningless way to end the story. I also think, how else could you have ended it? He could have died in the war. He could have died on a transport ship. She could die. I had actually assumed that what would annoy you about this novel, because it seems to be what hugely annoys you, and for good reason, is that it's so at least supposedly, emotionally anchored in this heterosexual relationship that we don't really get enough buy into. We just have to accept it as like, of course she's in love. He moved into the building and they've been inseparable 10 days. Oh boy. (laughs) You know, like they made a point of that. Well, you see, if I would have remembered that, I probably would have ranted about it. Yeah. I don't think it's clear why she loves this dude, but I'm kind of willing to accept that because I don't know. I guess that I try and keep a broad mind on things. And especially the older I get, the more I'm willing to be like, eh, people just fall in love randomly or whatever. He's a soldier. She loves him. Even if she thinks the war is stupid, even if she thinks he's going to die for no reason, maybe because she thinks he's going to die for no reason. Those damn Liberty bonds. (laughs) Those damn Liberty bonds. That, to my mind, is one of the more important political and historical aspects of the novel, the Liberty Bonds bit. And we see this in Dos Passos, too, but I think that, obviously, Porter gives us a different and more concise (laughs) and, obviously, woman's perspective on it. 
where we see all of the home front in the United States being subtly and not so subtly, in this case, a bit more subtly, coerced into consent for this war when nobody's really into it. Everybody thinks it's stupid, but everybody's too afraid to step out of line and say anything. That to me is really important. It'd be nice to have heard that, uh, I guess, sooner than 20 years after the damn thing was over. But uh, part, I mean, well, part of that was because literally the fucking courts were sending people to jail. If you made a speech saying don't register for the draft or even suggesting that the war was a bad idea in 1918, you were going to fucking jail. The Supreme Court upheld those decisions. You know how we use that expression, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater? You know how we use that expression as an explanation of the limits of free speech? That concept was first presented by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. in a Supreme Court decision on free speech. But specifically, it was one of the several cases from this era that went to the Supreme Court that questioned the constitutionality of throwing people in prison for opposing the government's decision to go to war. That is to say, literally, you had socialists and anarchists giving speeches saying, this is a bullshit war. This is just a war that the ruling class, they want to send you off to die because they want to make sure that they can make their money on it. Don't register for the draft. And a lot of people who even said less than that, a lot of people who didn't necessarily even say don't register for the draft, but obviously that was the implication if you just got up on a soapbox and said it was a bullshit war. They throw these people in prison. Uh, Eugene Debs ran a whole ass presidential campaign out of prison as an old man when he got thrown in the slammer for speaking out against the war. The most famous American socialist presidential candidate. And so Oliver Wendell Holmes writes this opinion, and this is the law of the land and the ruling on the First Amendment, basically, until shit starts loosening up in, I guess, the late 60s. I got to brush up on my constitutional law for this one. But it's a bad decision. It's a badass decision. Oliver Wendell Holmes is comparing standing on a soapbox and saying this is a bullshit war to standing up in a crowded movie theater and yelling fire when there's no fire. He's saying it is that dangerous effectively because the whole nation is on fire because Congress said so. That's a dangerous ass decision. Some people say, well, you should never therefore use that thought experiment of the crowded movie theater That doesn't remove the legitimacy of the thought experiment of the crowded movie theater. It merely says Oliver Wendell Holmes is obviously playing some really bullshit slippery slope game here because speaking out against a war is not the same thing as putting people in imminent danger. And with First Amendment tests, we very frequently are talking about stuff like imminent danger, imminent threats, stuff like that. So we should be able to make those distinctions. But The Supreme Court in 1917, 18, 19, 20, so on and so forth, did not make those distinctions. And people who spoke out against the war went to hard ass prison. And this is basically bleeds into the first Red Scare. Once you have the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and once you have, you know, the end of the war, then like, on a dime, it all turns from German immigrants and 
pacifists to, okay, yes, again, still socialists and anarchists, and yes, again, still immigrants, but more especially like Russian and Slavic and Italian immigrants, the populations of people who are more likely to be socialist and communist and anarchist. This is our first Red Scare. I do strongly recommend, there's a quite good History of the 20th Century podcast that's been going for a few years now that's, I think now he must be in the 20s or the 30s. He deals with both American domestic politics and international politics, and he does a full treatment of the war, and there are a couple episodes on the influenza pandemic and so on and so forth, and I'll put the influenza pandemic episodes in the notes, but I, of course, recommend the whole thing. I neglected to mention the other group of people who are obviously targeted and even more viciously targeted, which was, of course, Black people. But we mentioned that in episode one of this season. Gather around, kids, because it's story time. So picture this. It's the first few weeks of college. You're absolutely broke. You're starting to get into things like, obviously, school, friends, boys, clubs, until you meet your dingbat English professor, and he offers you a research job somehow. And then fast forward to almost two years later, I've had the most fun I've almost ever had with two amazing people. But... Like we said, we're in the void, and if you want us to keep talking about Russia in the 90s, well, Soldier Boys watched the sunset. Unfortunately, we do still live in a capitalistic hellhole. Join our Patreon. We're going to need your money if you want us to keep fucking around. Please consider donating. We'd really appreciate it. So Pale Horse, Pale Rider didn't even seem to really like... It didn't register for And that's fine. You know, it just wasn't to your taste. That's cool. It's not honestly to my taste personally, but I appreciate its significance. And I think I got more out of it on the second read too. But tell us a little bit about your ideas on Giant Guy's Gun. From the first read on, it kind of reminded me of my first read of Vonnegut, you know, and Slaughterhouse-Five. I remember reading that book yeah. in the top bunk of my dorm and my best friend was like, what are you reading? And I was like, oh man, this war novel. And there's, <laughs> there's this naked woman in the back. Do you want to see it? Like we thought it was. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. It ends with a titty drawing. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily call it a titty drawing just if it involved boobs, but if you see the thing, it's a titty drawing. I think they added in the locket in there just so they could say like, oh yeah, it's art, man. Oh no, oh no, the locket is super important. The locket is so fucking important. Oh my God, we're going to do an episode on Vonnegut soon enough. But in looking at what Vonnegut does with the form and what Trumbo does with the form, (laughs) and it's a form, like March does it, Ambrose Bierce does it before him. Trumbo does it, Vonnegut does it, fucking Tim O'Brien ends up doing it. It's a form. It's a specific style of war novel that's maybe not a war novel. Tell me, Anna, what is the thing that distinguishes between Vonnegut as a postmodernist and Trumbo as a modernist? Because these are the pinnacles of the form. Vonnegut, like absolute hardcore postmodern, and Trumbo, absolute absolute diehard hammer it into the floor modern what is the distinction the distinction definitely isn't in the form because they're all doing it obviously but they do it a little bit differently right so to me reading both and granted like i was 18 and scraping my head on the ceiling you know reading both of them 
like you said, you get a different feel for each of them, right? For Vonnegut, for me, they were shocking in different ways. For Vonnegut, I was shocked about how Billy can go from working, if I'm remembering this right, you know, working at an eye clinic to fucking his wife on his anniversary, then immediately back to, what was it, the war or something like that? And then his memories of actually being in the slaughterhouse and then seeing the Dresden girls. That feeling of reading that to me was different than this very contained piece yeah, this very, I would say contained is the right word. You know, I think contained versus sprawling is a good start. Yeah. Yeah. This very contained piece of, okay, yeah, you are jumping around because that is the form, right? But you are jumping around in a more restrained space because you yourself, as the reader, you're placed there with him in that hospital bed. Whereas Billy's whole life is open for interpretation. Yeah. There are rules. There are boundaries. The concrete aspects of reality should be obvious. And also the concrete limitations of the form are obvious. Whereas with Vonnegut, it's not, not only is reality up for debate, genre is up for debate. Is it a science fiction novel? Is it a comedy? Because I was laughing. Oh, it's absolutely a comedy. I mean, it's everything. Yeah. You know? I mean, Um, not anymore, but when it was published, (laughs) possibly. But that's also part of the point, right? That these things are culturally constructed. That's postmodernist. That, for me, reading both was the main difference. And like I said before, also the feelings that the writers intentionally are not put into what they're trying to do with these, you know, constrained versus just free for all or wild or questioning, you know, spaces. For Vonnegut, for me, you know, if you have no rules, then you also have a freer space, at least to my mind, to put more emotion into it to, you know, play to or against the genres that you're trying to question or concede to. Maybe that's why I had even a more emotional response to Vonnegut. And when I say emotional, I mean like more ranges of emotions to Vonnegut in comparison to when I was reading uh, Johnny Got His Gun and Trumbo. And that's an interesting take on it. I think that sometimes the risk with a postmodern novel is that it becomes, as we say in the 21st century, irony poisoned. That at a certain point, if everything is so satirical, if everything is so absurd, if everything is so up for grabs, at a certain point, nothing means anything. And Billy Pilgrim himself is a character who you might call irony poisoned or alienation poisoned or whatever. He doesn't feel anything because he realizes that his best bet to get out of it all is to just learn to not feel. And that is so very different from what we get in Trumbo. And yet there is something different insofar as the modernists, maybe not always, but frequently were into restraint. I think that That's what you mean by saying that there's a sort of containment or a control that's a little bit different. And not even in the form and not even how they write it, but, you know, even the supposed reader's reactions to what's written. The sentimentality will come and the sentimentality is there. And if it's done poorly, it's done poorly and it stands out. But 
assuming the thing got edited enough times, those bits got smoothed over. And we'll probably get back to this when we talk about A Farewell to Arms. But I think if it's done well, the sentimentality comes out as just raw and honest. And it comes out in a way that's controlled enough that it is in the right moments and then it gets pushed down, sort of the way that you would do it in real life then it becomes a sort of recapitulation of the consciousness, which is the thing that you're always trying to do with the stream of consciousness. And I'd say that's the sort of modernist signature, maybe not always, but often, at least in the novel. In the postmodern novel, I guess it's a little bit different where I almost want to say it's more like playing to an audience. It's less about the emotions of the characters themselves and showing those or concealing those and more about the emotions of the readers and provoking them or inhibiting them. Okay, from what you said, he's not feeling anything. And to me, in a different way than almost any other novel I've read, you know, he's kind of performing for the reader's reactions. So the performative (laughs) aspect, I think, is worth pointing out. And we've talked about this a little bit with postmodern art already, where postmodern fiction and postmodern art are very, very much about performance and audience perception. And you see that in certain elements of the radical and experimental modernist art, but that's a little bit different than what you'd get in popular high modernism, which is sort of the subgenre that I might use to describe novels like Johnny Got His Gun and Pale Horse, Pale Rider, which is to say, definitely nail it to the floor, modernist literature, but also lots and lots of people are reading it. It's selling a lot of copies and television doesn't exist and radio sucks. Popular high modernism might be a little less performative than, say, like Dada theater or, say, abstract painting or something like that. And then where you get to the post-war period, there, you know, is a sort of element to the novel. And this isn't to denigrate those novels. I love these novels, but there's an element to the novel that is the sort of stunt. And we see this as early as Heller's Catch-22 which is one of my favorite novels, but absolutely a significant turn of that Ambrose Bierce, William March, Dalton Trumbo style of war novel to postmodernism and absolutely is setting the stage for Vonnegut. And then by the time we get to talking about somebody like, say, Norman Mailer, who writes a fantastic Second World War novel, but then goes on to infamy as a punk-ass swinging dick, just basically being an attention whore for the next 20 or so years of his life. The point being that there is a performative aspect that becomes common in postmodernism in a way that perhaps even outstrips the artistry. Maybe that's not a super generous statement, but you get my point. Anna, let's take it back to Johnny Got His Gun. Tell us a little bit more about what you think worked well about it. If we're talking about the nail it to the floor, you know, very contained style. And I think I liked it, if I'm going to keep it short, I think I liked it for two main reasons. I liked it because it did the form well. There wasn't much room to breathe. The reader there is left suffocated with the images that Trumbo writes, which is my second point. The images that he mostly writes are horrific. And some examples that I can think of, I already mentioned the time, right? When he's trying to count time, he starts and he figures it out based on, if I remember right, you know, how the nurses come and go. 
you know, we follow him as he's successful and stuff like that. And he actually keeps time for a while. And then we go through this whole thing and then he loses time and it's heartbreaking. We also get descriptions of his bandages on his face and his physique. And physicality aside, you know, physical wounds aside, the way that Trumbo writes his mental space, too, is awful and horrifying, but to me in the best way possible. And for those two reasons, that's basically why I really enjoyed this book. I think that it is a probably very rare instance where a screenwriter learned something from film and brought it back to the page of the novel and actually improved the novel from it. And I think part of why it works well is because he's also obviously reading a lot of novels and, like I said, dead-ass stealing ideas and bringing them to it too. So it's a wonderfully syncretic and yet very, very contained, very disciplined application of the aesthetic. Did anybody else find a comma in the novel? I know that that's a random ass question, but usually if you write a couple hundred pages, you're going to have a few commas, right? Yeah. Did you even notice this? Not on my first read because I was concerned with other things, obviously. I think I've read two versions of this. One that I got from the library when I was in grad school and one the paperback version that I got when I started teaching it and that I've maintained ever since. And the version that I have now has a single comma in it early on in the novel, and it looks like a mistake to me. I think that it's a typesetter's mistake. I believe, and hopefully one of our several dozen fans can weigh in on this one, I believe that this is a full novel without a single comma in it. Part of that is because Trumbo doesn't use commas in the middle of the sentence the way that you would normally in a grammatical sense, but also part of it is because he doesn't use any speech tags. It's another aspect of some forms of modernism. And so it has this feel to it that if you're just starting to read, it can be incredibly awkward. But once you dig into it and start to flow with the rhythms of the novel, it, I think, really pulls you into that, what the critic would call it, free indirect discourse. We're floating in that third person space and then back down to the first person space and then back up to the third person and back down to the third person. And honestly, Porter is doing a similar thing, but she's doing it in what I would call a more old school way, whereas Trumbo's doing it in that almost mechanical, hard modernist even to the point where he's doing language collages a la Dos Passos, where he's putting in snippets of music and snippets of political speeches and then little bits and pieces of thoughts. And it's all just crammed in there together. I don't know if it was so much refreshing, the morbidity and his saltiness, Joe's. Come on, youngsters, take a nice look and then we'll go into our nursery rhymes. New nursery huh. rhymes for Times. Hickory dickory dock, my daddy's nuts from shell shock. Humpty Dumpty thought he was wise till gas came along and burned out his eyes. A diller, a dollar, a ten o'clock scholar, blow off his legs and then watch him holler. It's dark shit, yeah. Yeah, it's dark shit. This is soldier's humor, right? I think that it yeah. actually, to my mind, it in the 21st century doesn't work as well because it's the kind of thing that we've seen in parody before. You know, we've seen very dark parodies of songs and nursery rhymes mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So it almost seems hokey 
But in its era, it must have been very effective. And it's also significant because what it's doing is it's taking that dark soldier's humor from the front line to the ordinary person. Bringing it to not only ordinary people, but children. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because his whole point in that section is that, of course, they want the kids to go off and fight the next war. The temptation with this novel is to say it's written too late. Well, it's not written too late. It's written too early. It's a literal generation after the end of the First World War. Uh, It's, I think, the novel that basically marks the end of interwar literature. It's basically the last First World War novel written before the Second World War fully kicks up. But realistically, it's a novel that's not written too late but written too early because what he's getting at in a section like that is how the kids of the silent generation who are coming up in the late forties are going to go off to Korea thinking of their dads fighting in the second world war or how kids like Ron Kovic are going to go off to Vietnam in the generation after that. This is a novel that very nearly gets literalized in Born on the Fourth of July, where the whole idea is that like, oh, yeah, I remember all the vets marching in the parades when I was a kid and I wanted to be an American hero, too. And and now I'm fucking paralyzed and we've got to end this war. You see why he felt like he needed to remake it in 71. (laughs) Anna says everybody gets a war. Everybody doesn't need to get a war. I mean, or we could choose our wars better. And that's the end of the novel is like, you know, if you're going to give me a gun, okay. You know, Woody Guthrie did a line on this where he would do an improv off of Acres of Clams. And this is Korean War era. They said, will you point a gun for your country? And I answered the FBI, yay. I'll point a gun for my country, but I won't guarantee you which way. That's basically a Dust Bowl-ass summary of the end of this novel, right? Like, you'll give us the guns, see what happens, motherfucker. Which is significant, and which gets cut out of the 1971 version, which I kind of despise. People were literally in the streets waving North Vietnamese flags in 68, 69. And now Trumbo is going to come out with a movie that just tries to boil this down to a sweet pacifist message. And then when he can't get what he wants, he just begs to be killed. I find that really upsetting and insulting Why did you bother standing tall on your communism if you don't want to come back at us with communism here? you got to be true to the ending of that novel. You've got to have at the end a grand statement that we are the workers and we hold the guns and we build the bridges and we bake the bread. And if you tell us to go kill some other workers, we will kill you. Otherwise, it doesn't really mean anything. And so that's my main disappointment with the movie version. I mean, I think that the movie version is also hokey in ways that are to be expected, but that's my main disappointment with it. I did like the change in the ending in the movie. That was, I didn't like it, but it was interesting. And I talked about this earlier with the nurse with the clamps and I didn't like it, but it was interesting. There is communication going on between him and the nurse. They're working together. They're doing things. Well, we might get back to what they're doing exactly, because I think that's interesting, too. I didn't think that the movie was going to preserve the handjob scene, but it does. I thought that that would be removed. 
Dalton Trumbo, true to his hand jobs more than his politics. <laughs> but I think that it is nice to see as you said, Rachel, seeing the outside world gives us an opportunity to see that collaboration between what's going on in Joe Bonham's head, whether it is like a form of escapism and the sort of functionality of, okay, what does that mean to the rest of the world? Yeah, it's kind of like 1917, where it's just a straight shot where it felt never ending. And that's uh-huh. what it was like in the book for me, audiobook. <laughs> no shame in the audiobook. Johnny Got His Gun was like <laughs> 1917, where it just felt monotonous and you could not escape. You were trapped because that's the whole phrase we had it. You're trapped. But with the movie, we had that escapism where we didn't have to be Joe. We could live as regular, quote unquote, people. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's a good way of thinking of how the media of film and literature diverge in terms of what makes a thing modern or what makes a thing postmodern. That already the modern form of film realizes that vernacular of the cut. And in the vernacular of the cut, in that grammar, we get something of the postmodern already, that we move around, that we switch things. And so then there's a different radicality of saying, no, I'm not going to do a cut. I'm going to do the tracking shot. And Kubrick is already realizing this in Paths of Glory, where he does those long tracking shots down the trench line. And you could say that this is a modernist style, even though decades earlier, Eisenstein is doing a modernist style with very intensive montage cuts. But that puts 1917 in perspective as a 21st century movie that is very self-consciously trying to put us back into that modernist frame. And I think that it's an interesting framing, Rachel, because I thought of it as a very much 21st century frame. But of course, I love the idea of a 21st century modernism. So I think that you've taught me something here where the 21st century computer game point of view can actually be because it's about recapitulating a consciousness, recapitulating an experience is actually sort of a throwback modernist thing, as opposed to that hard montage intercut postmodernism that we might see in any normal movie. So you're saying that's why games such as D&D are like single player shooter stuff? I'm just throwing out ideas, but to my mind, 1917 seemed realistic for people who were familiar with that video game experience. And that's why it seemed like a good approach to the form to me, even if it wasn't maybe realistic in certain technical senses. Mm-hmm. And that continuity of experience that we get in the stream of consciousness is significant. That's novelistic. That's modernist. It's honestly also the thing that separates Pale Horse, Pale Rider from Johnny Got His Gun in that, as we've said, the whole form of the modern, cynical American war novel was already set up along the lines of a certain number of cuts and perspective shifts. And so, yeah, Johnny got his gun. It's true to the stream of consciousness within any particular part, but it's also invested in that alternation between the flashback and the present day consciousness. 
Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider is even more dedicated to the stream all the way through. Even though there are flashbacks, even though there are dream sequences, so on and so forth, even using the term sequence doesn't quite feel right because it all just blends together. It's all of a piece. There aren't even chapters or sections or are there even double line breaks? I don't remember that. I think it just runs the whole way through. Is that it right? It just runs the whole way through. Yeah. She's just got like transitions I was looking for it like I forgot how she had transitioned, but she was like, and then it was a deep, deep and whatever. For someone who's losing consciousness, it's kind of a big deal not to have any breaks. That is a significant formal decision, and I would suggest a, a modernist formal decision. And a number of profs I've had in the past will not talk of modernism as a single thing, but of modernisms as a number of different approaches to, I guess, the problem of modernity, if you will. But it's nice to pick out these distinctions and also these similarities. I mean, as I said, the fact that Trumbo's making the decision not to use the comma, there's a certain like, we're going to blast the whole way through right there. But that's also the difference between the fact that Pale Horse, Pale Rider gets published in a collection, whereas Johnny Got His Gun gets published in a serial and then hardcover and then paperback. And the latter would be the more traditional way that any novel had ever been published, basically from the 19th century all the way through mid-20th. And then once you get the novel as its own form, and especially as a prestige form, then it's like, well, a novel is a novel is a novel, especially after the paperback revolution. She used seven line breaks. Seven line. You counted them. Good job. Yeah. Yeah, And by line breaks, you mean a double carriage return, as those of us on a typewriter would call it. Does that mean there's just extra space between paragraphs? Yes, a double carriage okay, return. Okay, yes, yeah. a double carriage return. I can't remember anything. Can't tell if this is true or dream. Deep down inside, I feel the scream. This terrible silence stops in there. What do you think about Trumbo's political perspective as he expresses it in Johnny Got His Gun? It's very PC, like, you can sum it up in the last page. PC? What do you mean by that? PC. Oh, PC. I disagree, (laughs) but continue. He's talking about it's a rich man's war, poor man's fight kind of shit. Absolutely, yeah. That's it. And it's very anti-system. Well, not exactly. He's so full of rage. And it's obvious. Why would he ever forgive the government? Because they were the one that sent him. Well, the thing is that the government doesn't give a shit whether he forgives them or not. I think that actually, and this is the difference between being an idealist and a materialist, Rachel, and I suspect that you're an idealist. This is why I give you a hard time. I think that equally important as his politics as they come out are how he comes to his politics. That is to say, the the process through which he gets to a point where he has the place to say, rich man's war, poor man's fight. First off, we get the whole story of his solidarity with other workers, even though he's always, in a certain sense, been alienated. He's always, in a certain sense, been different. And I think the difference between him and someone like Miranda is because he was always just a dude. He thought that he was just like everybody else. But when he goes back to his memories, it's always him in these situations where he feels really out of place. And yet there throughout is this notion of him as a worker, even if he's a little bit more privileged 
or even if he's a little bit different from other workers. There is what I want to call a surprising lack of racism in this novel. And I know that this is the kind of thing that folks like yourself might be like, well, you know, no prizes for that one. But in 1918, 1919, 1920, in this era, Two of the most famous white men in America literally had the nickname that was the N-word and then their last name, just because that was something that people threw around so much. Both Babe Ruth and General John Pershing had the nickname Ruth and Pershing. Wow. Because people were so damn comfortable throwing that around because Babe Ruth had a big nose and because John Pershing early in his career commanded a black cavalry regiment. So it is really difficult for me to stress the degree to which racism was normal in this period in the United States. It's so difficult to state it that we can't say it out loud because it's like fucking offensive. And that's why you'll hear things like, oh, yeah, General Black Jack Pershing. That's what they call him. That's the more cleaned up version of his nickname. So for Joe Bonham to tell stories about working side by side with Chicano dudes on the railroad, in the bakery, and to even talk about them as guys who had a really great work ethic or guys who had really high principles about their relationship with the boss and stuff like that. This is a big deal. And Trumbo often explained, and I think this is kind of an excuse because I would prefer to say that Trumbo was a communist. He just, you know, didn't necessarily agree with the communists on everything. But, you know, hey, that's like anybody who's in any party feels that way, right? But Trumbo often explained his communism as mainly resulting from his anti-racist position. And even then, he still has Joe calling Kareen a mick jokingly like dozens of times in a row to provoke her. So let's not take that away. In a world that's swimming in racism, Trumbo anchors an idea of solidarity in the West of the United States in terms of an interracial solidarity of the working class. We all work together on the railroad and in the bakery and on the production line. And ultimately, when we go to war, that means that if they say you're on the other side of this border and therefore you're my enemy, that's bullshit. So there is an anti-racist streak in this novel that's really significant and that kind of leads to its pacifism in a way that is easy to overlook if you don't quite realize how goddamn racist people were in the teens and, I mean, honestly, still in the 30s. It had eased up a little bit in the 30s, and part of what eased it up was the Second World War. Some of that was Hollywood propaganda helping give us this idea of the interracial, multi-ethnic fighting force that we have in the World War II movies that I hope we'll do a couple of episodes on soon enough. And part of it was the horror of the Holocaust, ultimately. But I mean, obviously, America is still plenty racist these days, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so there's that. And then there is the more like fundamentally materialist aspect to this, which is a question of the way that Joe Bonham interacts with objects in the world, the way that he thinks of himself as an object, the way that he thinks about animals, 
the way that he thinks about the trench rats and the corpses and so on and so forth. And this is all that eco-materialist shit that I'm so obsessed with. And those of you in pod land who are inclined to can check out my YouTube gloss of this, but I'm not going to harp on it too much. But basically, I would argue that this is a pretty significant lead into his notion of what the working class is and what they need to do. Because by the time he gets to that end of the novel, he's saying, we are the bakers of bread. We are the ones who string the high tension power lines. We're working with our hands, but that's a collaboration with objects. It's coming out of him seeing himself as an object, finding a solidarity with people who are unlike him, with animals who are unlike him, with things that are unlike him. And this is something that sounds almost crazy to a lot of people, but it is an extremely, extremely expansive notion of what solidarity can be. And it's the kind of thing that Tim Morton's getting into with a theory book like Humankind. I think this is absolutely indispensable to the novel. And it ultimately gets to a place where he's not just saying that we're going to not fight the war. He's saying, I mean, this is like 1918 politics. This is revolutionary politics. This is communist takeover of the government shit. I'm reading from my paperback copy says page 241. Remember it well. We, we, we are the world. We are what makes it go round. We make bread and cloth and guns. We are the hub of the wheel and the spokes and the wheel itself. Without us, you would be hungry, naked worms, and we will not die. We are immortal. We are the sources of life. We are the lowly, despicable, ugly people. We are the great, wonderful, beautiful people of the world, and we are sick of it. We are utterly weary. We are done with it forever and ever because we are the living and we will not be destroyed. If you make a war, if there are guns to be aimed, if there are bullets to be fired, if there are men to be killed, they will not be us. They will not be us. The guys who grow wheat and turn it into food, the guys who make clothes and paper and houses and tiles the guys who build dams and power plants and string the long moaning high tension wires, the guys who crack crude oil down into a dozen different parts, who make light globes and sewing machines and shovels and automobiles and airplanes and tanks and guns. Oh no, it will not be us who die. It will be you. It will be you, you who urge us on to battle, you who incite us against ourselves, you who would have one cobbler kill another cobbler, you who would have one man who works kill another man who works you who would have one human being who wants only to live kill another human being who wants only to live remember this remember this well you people who plan for war remember this you patriots you fierce ones you spawners of hate you inventors of slogans remember this as you have never remembered anything else in your lives we are men of peace we are men who work and we want no quarrel but if you destroy our peace, if you take away our work, if you try to range us one against the other, we will know what to do. If you tell us to make the world safe for democracy, we will take you seriously. And by God, by Christ, we will make it so. We will use the guns you force upon us. We will use them to defend our very lives. And the menace to our lives does not lie on the other side of a no man's land that was set apart without our consent. It lies within our own boundaries here. And now we have seen it and we know it. Put the guns into our hands and we will use them. Them. Give us the slogans and we will turn them into realities. Sing the battle hymns and we will take them up where you left off. Not one, not 10, not 10,000, not a million, not 10 millions, 
not a hundred millions, but a billion, two billions of us, all the people of the world, we will have the slogans and we will have the hymns and we will have the guns and we will use them and we will live. Make no mistake of it. We will live. We will be alive and we will walk and talk and eat and sing and laugh and feel and love and bear our children in tranquility, in security, in decency, in peace. You plan the wars, you masters of men. Plan the wars and point the way and we will point the gun. World revolution, starting from the objects all the way up to the people, workers across all boundaries. So this is obviously my beef with the movie. As I already laid out, you could go full defeatist communist, but instead Trumbo just went peacenik. Anna, tell me what Metallica did with this. I have a lot of different thoughts on one. From the beginning, okay, you hear this really rattling sound, almost like a gunshot like we talked about with Owen's poetry. And that immediately reminded me of the start to Another Brick in the Wall, part two, which is another song I love. And I thought that was a really strong way to, you know, hook listeners into the song. And then it goes on to be more mellow and actually for me, you know, subverting expectations of how rough the song is going to be. For me, it was the kind of mellow that you see in Zeppelin B cuts or something like that. And then, you know, that goes on for a while. It is a very long song at seven minutes. And the mellow keeps going on for a while until you hit this break where it breaks and then this awesome guitar comes in. I'm always a sucker for guitar. And where it was mellow, it pulls you back in again. And I really appreciate that. And then obviously the lyrics and stuff, but I would say that, you know, this song would be better without the lyrics. I think the instruments on its own and that great hook at the beginning are enough to sustain this song. I thought it was great, but you know, also I'm partial to the hammer it hard aspects of Metallica, you know? So this was different and it was good for those reasons. And if anything, I did a quick gloss over the music video. I didn't see the whole thing. Gotta admit that. But from what I saw, honestly, I think it would have been better if Metallica wasn't in it at all. Yeah, yeah. It's like a slave to the form type thing where it's like, okay, we have you in the room performing here, but what the fuck are you doing? Like, they're not a hardcore band. This is back to modernism. They're a nail it to the floor metal band. They're really focused on getting the riffs right. And so it doesn't look all that interesting. And in that way, too, they're popular, too, right? That's different in my mind as well. By popular, do you mean like poppy sounding or do you mean they're popular? Like popular, you know, they're not. Yeah, I I guess I got to look into it. Were they already big by 89? I guess probably. They were. were? Okay. Yeah, because Kill 'Em All came out in 83. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) You're better on metal history than I am. So they had, you know, seven years by that point. They were already, like, over the crest. Right, exactly. And so here you have cheap cuts of them playing guitar over cool cuts of the secondary video, which probably should have been the whole thing. You know, they shouldn't have had words in it because it cheapens the whole thing. You think they should have just done an instrumental and used the samples from the movie? I think that would have been so cool. 
that would have been really cool. And I think that honestly, again, you can check me on this one, but I think that you don't see that kind of style of instrumental metal taking off until the mid to late nineties. I mean, the Melvins do a little bit of it earlier than that, but by the mid to late nineties, you have whole ass bands that are just like, we're a metal band. We don't have a vocalist. Obviously Metallica is doing some of it because some of my favorite songs are their only instrumental songs, Uh but I wouldn't say to the scale of how popular they were. I definitely would agree with your statement. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the failings of this song is that I almost want to say it's too metal, like in the vulgar sense, it's really metal in the obsession with the suicidality of the narrator. Hold my breath as I wish for death. I really like the intro. It was nice and soft. Exactly. Well, okay. So the intro is this long, twinkly ass instrumental. And I think this was very popular in the late 80s, especially finding ways that there were sort of intersections between the highly technical hair metal instrumental and classical music. And it's a very good example of that. And it sounds good and it's done well. It's also exactly the kind of thing that doesn't need to be on video. Like Kirk Hammett playing guitar is not exciting. You know what I mean? He's just like, okay, here's a dude playing a guitar. But like I said, the chorus, once they get into it, it's like we're playing, but we're hitting our notes. We're not moving around enough to really want to fuck this up because it's almost as though they videotaped the studio recording, which is ridiculous because the whole thing about a music video is that it's overdubbed. So you could move around as much as you wanted to. They're just standing still head banging a little and nailing all of their notes perfectly. And then we get lines like, hold my breath as I wish for death. And as I've said before, I think that that's exactly the problem is that they're telling a story about a guy who wants to die. It's not a story about a guy who wants to die. They're taking that end point of the movie that in the book is actually really only a moment early on in his consciousness before he figures out what he can do with his brain. And taking that last resort as a main point, which, yeah, is all very metal and all, but not politically meaningful. How would Refused do it? Refused would do a song about rising up and fucking overthrowing the ruling class, which is what the book is really about. But I would submit to you that this is a dumb guy's idea about what a smart guy's song would be. They're trying to be very clever, but it is very limited. They've clearly only seen the movie. They're much better at playing the guitar than they are and coming up with words. I don't know. Anna, does this track for you? Yeah, and now I'm even thinking of the title. When you speak of that excerpt that you just read, and then they go on yeah. this. One. Exactly. One. And now I think about it like, oh, you know, that guy in that hospital bed, like it only takes one. Right? It's not one. No, the, the whole point is it's not about one. It's about it's everybody. Not- yeah. Oh, God. Good it, note. I'm not even it's that not- good at writing. It was so close to being really good, like the song itself. It was missing some. <sighs> 
I appreciated watching it, honestly, after I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I remembered it as one of the scary music videos. A friend of mine would be like, is this evil? And I'd be like, what does it mean for you to ask that a music video is evil? It's just supposed to be scary, dude. The way he meant to say was that it was creepy, which it is. And that's the whole point. It's Um, missing the My Chemical Romance oomph. Explain to me what you mean by that. Well, your Metallica is my my chemical romance. But this is a, I, Go on. I think that this is actually an important historical point, but you need to explain it a little bit more, Rachel. Well, I was watching my chemical romance in middle school and high school when I was like all angsty and like depressed and blah, 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 blah. And this you is know? the mid-naughties? So, the mid-naughties uh, is like 05, 06. Oh, I would have been five and six. But oh, they were sorry. My time. My cousin is five years older than me. Definitely her vibe. And then I caught on a little bit because I was angsty and didn't have any friends. But I definitely caught on and like, it makes depressed, angsty, lonesome, prepubescent, pubescent teenage girls go like, oh yeah, I'm going hard, but it's not. Okay. I don't think you have to be limited to that sphere though. But I understand what you're saying. You think you're hard, but it's not. That's actually what this was for me. I remember being a kid and somebody seeing this and being like, oh, this was weird and creepy. But also I remember never liking Metallica. You know, I was into Nirvana and Pearl Jam and you know, I was into grunge bands. Uh, and then I was into punk bands after that. And then I was into hardcore bands. A part of this is just literally where you set the dials on your fucking amplifier. But one thing I hate about the metal bands of this era is they're very nasal. There's a lot of highs and then they scoop the mids, which is to say you turn your mid dial all the way down. And Kurt Cobain was notorious for doing the exact opposite of this. He'd turn his mid all the way up. And obviously there's a lot of metal influence on grunge, even though they talked shit on metal, but you'd say this, some of this is a sort of war for the soul of hard rock in the early nineties, where the grunge bands just sounded muddier. And that was the whole point. And eventually that's sounding harder. And as you know, Anna, everyone knows Metallica isn't hard. Well, if you're a normal ass person, maybe you don't know that. But if you're a metalhead, of course you know that because they're called Metallica. That's your first tip off. Everyone knows that, say, Anti-Flag isn't going to be the most radical political punk band in the world, though they might be your gateway drug. Yeah, it's hard for me to listen to this. And I think that There were other bands like, I guess, Slayer and Anthrax were maybe doing a better job in this period. Anna, you probably have better ideas than I would. But I'm thinking I want something thumpier because the song doesn't really kick off until the very end where they have those blast beats. Uh, That may not be the technical term. You have the double bass come in. And that's where it's suddenly like, oh, yeah, you guys are a metal band. I remember that, you know. <laughs> and and the difference like, about MCR is that it actually kind of slaps. For- you're very into that sort of theatrical, performative, sing-along type thing. That's, that's you. Me. That's not metal. No, it's not. But like the music videos, like <laughs> they, they've got the hair swoop. They've got the emo. It's like. No, I understand. What you're talking about is the commodification of an image. 
The equivalent of that is maybe a generation or maybe 10 years, depending on where you want to market earlier, of the coming of pop punk in the mid 90s. And we'll we'll do this when we do our 1994 episode. We're going to do an episode of albums that came out in 94 because it's going to be fucking bonkers. But think of The Offspring. You can sing along to an Offspring song and it is undoubtedly a punk song. But it's also kind of embarrassing if you're around a bunch of punks to be like, (laughs) I love the offspring, you know. This sounds like a completely off topic thing, but this is actually getting into the question of things like modernism and postmodernism, because this is getting into the question of cultures and subcultures and what's popular versus what's cool and what's experimental versus what's been done a million times and what's just the way we do it and what's a new way to do it and what's borrowing other ways to do it and what's, you know, making something new out of those things. At a certain point, it becomes even difficult to define what a genre is. Like, I don't know what I'd call My Chemical Romance. They're not really an emo band. They're grouped with 21 Pilots, Fall Out Boy, and Panic at the Disco slash Brendan. Exactly. And these are bands, I mean, like Fall Out Boy has been described as pop punk. I would call it, historically speaking, the last gasp of popular rock and roll. And so that's like like blending together what they got from pop punk in the 90s with what they got from Mm -hmm. metal and emo with what they got from everywhere else. It's just like all thrown up into a blender and this is what you get. And I don't know these bands very well. I'm sure that some of their songs are good and probably a lot of them are hokey. But, you know, you could say that of a lot of bands. You know, when I was coming up, I really enjoyed the first two Bush albums. And we'll spend some time talking about this. Bush takes a lot of shit for being a Johnny Come Lately, like, are you really a grunge band pop rock outfit? But what they did was meaningful in its moment. And you look back on it, it's like, yeah, it's kind of hokey. But there is a reason why they had five fucking hit singles off a single album. There's a reason why Johnny Got His Gun won the National Book Award. You know, there's a reason why people remember Metallica's one. Maybe there are certain hokey aspects of these things. And maybe you can see the obvious fingerprints of, yo, you stole this from another place. You didn't come up with this yourself. But it worked. You know, it worked well enough for it to get into the consciousness and for people to see it. And that was the whole point, I guess. Well, in our previous conversations, too, we've talked about how everything is basically recycled anyway. So... Well, we only say that because we're living in 2021. I think that, you know, 100 years ago, their whole approach would be we're not going to recycle anything, but you'd see how easily 10 years later it becomes recycling. And I think that after postmodernism, it's easier for us to be a little bit more honest and say even those people who thought they were innovators were always learning from other people before them. And that claim of originality was always a performance because now we're more comfortable with the idea of the artist as performer. That's exactly why the director was like, no, we've got to get footage of the band playing the song and intercut it with the thing because the band as performance was the whole point. Like, why are you going to watch a Metallica video and not see Metallica? It was a very big deal when for, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years, I'm not exactly sure for how long, REM didn't appear in any of their music videos. They made a conscious artistic decision not to do that. They just assigned directors to make music videos. 
the music video is kind of a form that's dead, but you, you get what I mean. There's a question of the idea of what a performance is versus what a work of art is. And some people who are purists might like the idea of the work of art just stands alone. And that was something that some of the modernists really pushed hard and some of the critics in that era, especially the new critics, tried to push it hard. But ultimately, part of the turn to postmodernism is part of the that is, you know, coming to terms with the idea that, well, the artist is always part of the art, whether you want it to be or not. And it is always a performance. Professor Frank Cuchile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The music in today's episode is one on Metallica's album and Justice for All. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at PointlessScent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our T-Public merch and our Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century.